Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Kirk Delbeni, the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Kurt, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Well, thanks for having me. We are catching up on Zero Trust. Uh, this is a obviously an administration priority. We know that there's the Zero Trust strategy and the implementation plan and everything is Zero Trust these days. You all just provided a, a recent update of your Zero Trust efforts. So let's start there. Where are you today? What are some of those short and long-term goals? We are super focused on Zero Trust. I think for me, the thing that's super powerful about Zero Trust is that it's a simple concept for people to understand But when you look at the different vulnerabilities in the organization, it's very prescriptive about figuring out what the most uh, important things are to attack, but still allows you the ability to figure out in your particular organization what you think the most important vulnerability is. And so, you know, at its heart, as you well know, it's all about the the primary assumption that says your perimeter is not, you can't count on it, that people are going to get through it. And when they get through it, you have to make sure they just can't access anything that they shouldn't be able to access. So we're very focused as a result of some of the fundamentals around getting to 100% MFA. That's in terms of multi-factor authentication. That's in terms of both end users connecting to the network, but also systems using single sign-on, which implements MFA, getting that to 100% as well. We have 100% employment of making sure our devices are secure by having um, antivirus software and constantly scanning them, constantly scanning devices in our network, our servers, making sure they're at a baseline level of, of configuration that has all, its, all the patches on it, et cetera. One of the other key things is around least privileged access. That is a, a challenging thing to do in an organization like the VA, where we have over 1,000 systems. But we've identified a set of bedrock systems, the ones that everybody depends upon, a set of critical systems that are that next level, that are really the ones that run the VA. And getting to a point where we've validated access lists for for all of those systems is really critical. The other thing that for us, I think, is really critical is making sure that we reduce the number of non-humans connecting and increase the sophistication of the connection mechanisms uh, from server to server. So getting our, our number of service accounts down, making sure we're rotating passwords super frequently there, making sure there isn't the ability to, to get a machine fished laterally. And also, you still have to assume that that's going to happen sometimes. And so do you have great telemetry that's looking for these signals that you've been compromised? And finally, I would say getting really great around remediation. The time to cordon off that issue, the time to remediate it. You need to drive that down, down, down. And the first thing you do there is you got to measure it. How long did it, for a particular vulnerability, how, how quickly did it get closed? How quickly were you able to remediate that particular device? And so we're looking across the entire kind of frame of zero trust. And then super important to us is to be prioritized. And so we look from a technical perspective of what we think the greatest vulnerabilities are and which are the ones we want to close first. Because zero trust isn't a place where you actually get to and you're done. It's a journey that's going to be kind of, uh, you know, lather, rinse, repeat over and over again. And that's really important. So we think about always being um, risk-based and then setting OKRs, chief uh, goals that we have for the organization and doing that at two semesters per year of defining a set of goals we want to accomplish in this semester, setting metrics on success, and then reflecting upon those and figuring out what are we going to change for the upcoming semester to get better and better. And then the final thing I would say is we're marrying that with a great compliance strategy, which we already had in the VA, but we think we can bolster even more. 
that says across, you know, make sure all the systems hit that baseline set of requirements and then use the ATO gate and the FATARA gates as places where we review these systems, we review contractors to make sure they're doing the right thing. Without a doubt, the plate is full. So let me take a half right. a step back and ask, when you start prioritizing this, how do you go about that? There's so many things that are important. You have a lot of goals and you have pressure to keep the systems running as is and, and you know, security doesn't sleep. What's the process by which you're, you're saying, here's where we're going to start? in these 10 areas, 40 areas, 100 areas? You kind of got to start with some of the fundamentals. I think MFA, multi-factor authentication for all devices, is a, and having great hygiene on devices that connect to the network, absolutely a top goal. It is kind of one of the, the bedrocks there. I think you then also have to prioritize based on what you think the vector of compromise would look like. So, And I think that depends upon your organization. So for instance, we don't depend upon the perimeter. But we know the perimeter action, the federal government has decent security and is defended. And so, but we want to validate that. So we spent a bunch of time early on saying, scan the network, figure out, are there any open ports? Are there any places of vulnerability there? So even though we're not depending upon the perimeter, we do want to make sure the perimeter is secure. And then we have folks like CISA that are actually, you know, probing for us. And we love that too. So that, can, that changes a little bit the complexion of what, how you're going to think about prioritization towards, you know, like if you, what is the probability of somebody phishing and going laterally? We also have things where nobody runs an admin. So that whole, you know, in the public or private sector, there are a lot of machines out there that everybody has full access. If you get in, you can do anything with that device that you want. So there's, we take that as the foundation. And on top of that, we say, what are the likely vulnerabilities? And then we marry that also with a notion of what are the most important systems we need to defend and really focusing on what the specific vulnerabilities are for those most critical systems. It almost goes back to this idea of what are your high value assets, something that obviously the White House has been pushing, OMB has been pushing, understanding what those are, and then kind of working. It's a, didn't they call it the, uh, the, the Tootsie Roll lollipop approach, right? Soft, get your soft chewy inside and, and work to the hard outside. You have some existing tools. Talk about the gap analysis. What did it tell you, generally speaking? How are you kind of merging those existing tools with what you need new or, or different capabilities? I think we have a pretty good tool set, but there's the interesting thing is there's so much innovation going on in the industry. You can get yourself to the point of saying, you know, I've got one in every space. I've got my telemetry. I've got my software that scans devices. I've got all these different things that are that collectively are my toolkit. But there's so much innovation going on that we listen to a lot of vendors and try to understand, is there something new that they're delivering that we actually think we could make use of? And we, we pilot a bunch of stuff in the VA. But I would also say, if, you know, if there are vendors that are listening, know that if we have a lot of tools and we have a lot of people coming towards us, and it has to be that thing that um, either fits a niche that we don't have or is really kind of a different spin on things because there is such a plethora of tools that are out there. I feel pretty good about the tools that we have. The place that we get challenged is in our complexity. So for instance, we have a lot of uh, medical devices that are out there. We have to do special things to secure those devices because they're not always up to date in terms of their um, security footprint because of the nature of the biomed space and the safe harbor principle. And it's really a very challenging space to be in. And these devices all want to connect up to you know, the, their providers, so to speak. And yet that's a vulnerability. So we have to pay particular attention to the biomed space to make sure that we create subnets that actually we know exactly what the perimeter looks like 
and we know that nothing can get from the outside can get in and vice versa. And we have to also look at our supply chain and look at what are the security principles of, of that thing that it's connecting to, if it must connect to it to perform its function, so to speak. So I would say, overall, I feel good about the tool set. It is really in for, uh, pushing the entire team to think threat-based and to also think about the ATO, the authority to operate as a hard gate that we're going to be hardcore on. And, and also when the material comes up in an ATO, is it presented so that we can tell people, as I said, there's compliance and there's threat analysis based on real technical analysis. Is it crisp in telling that authorizing authority, hey, you should feel good about this one going on your network, or maybe you shouldn't. And maybe we just need to have a really small ATO so that that team can get their act together and come back in a more secure way 30 days from now, 90 days from now, et cetera. I remember we talked about that ATO process and how you're trying to both speed it up, but also make it more rigorous, probably about a year or so ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Before I go there, though, you mentioned this idea of you feel good about your tool sets, but you're really looking for stuff that fits a niche or maybe a different spin on things. So you kind of opened the door to this discussion around AI, ML, advanced yeah. analytics. Uh, is that the type of things you're looking for? I mean, I know it's we're very broad based here, but but when you say different spin or, or fit, fits a specific yeah. niche. I do think it's a place where, I don't know whether it's AI so much as, as advanced techniques to scan for, for signals or indicators of compromise. I think there is a huge opportunity for, you know, there's a ton of, of data that's coming out. I don't mean data in the sense of an applications data, but information that could indicate a compromise. I think being able to synthesize all of that data in, in alerting the user while not being so noisy that it comes off as you're just seeing alerts because we, you know, our seam is just spewing alerts and we have to filter that down. How do you get to a system that is actually seeing everything going on? And when you see an alert on that, you know, it's something you really got to pay attention to. If AI can do that, you know, I think I understand that certainly in places like generative AI, what that's all about. I don't know that that's actually a space, although that's certainly the hot space in the industry these days. But I do think it's certainly a machine learning. Uh, the ability to see patterns that reoccur over and over again and to draw inference as to whether it's it's noise versus its signal. I do think there are ML techniques that, that can be synthesized into tools that can be super helpful. I mean, you really do have to assume that you've been compromised. And so there are things running around in your organization that you need to go find. And I do think I think there's a real opportunity to create tools that that help in that space. I appreciate that. Obviously, you're right. The chat GPT, I think every conference I've been to in the last couple of weeks, all about that's all people want to talk about. And the funny thing is, no one's really using it yet from a government perspective, but it's kind of crazy. Discussion. But it's exciting, too. But just I, I if somebody may be able to prove to me that it has rel cool relevancy in the security space. I just haven't seen that quite yet. In the security space, though, in the grant space, someone told me it has great relevance. Uh, yeah. Let me switch back to the ATO. When we talked about this again, maybe 18 months ago or so, that piece was just kind of getting started. Where are you today with that process? How is it maybe having that impact you hoped it would when we talked 18 or so months ago? Uh, that's a great question. So when we last talked, I was looking at it and, and experiencing my first ATO reviews. And it really looked like things like, do you have this documentation in place? That is kind of the lowest level of compliance, which is important but it doesn't speak to the real, are you following best practices in, in securing system? And so we've now moved to a model where we do evaluate the compliance. I actually think we need to move to a model where we may have too many policies. 
it is easy to define a policy and decide you're done. The hard part is implementing that policy. And so I think we find we stumble across policies that like if you looked at it as an engineer, you say, wow, that's not a very achievable policy. Maybe we need to either edit that or just say it's not so important that we need it whatsoever. I don't think we've quite gotten to that point, but we measure that kind of core policy compliance. Then we measure across key initiatives like least privileged access and have you audited your access list recent in the last 90 days. And we look at that in particular. And then we marry that with this technical assessment. And I'm really pu pushing our security folks to not think about policy so much. Think about if you look at this system, what worries you? What do you want to communicate to the authorizing authority about whether you feel this is a good thing to put on the system, on the network or not? And then we've changed to like, it used to be we'd say, well, they're making some progress and we want to, them to continue the progress. So we're going to give them a year's ATO. Now we talk about ATOs that can be sh as short as 30 days to get their house in order and something. We haven't gotten to the point where we've actually said, we're not giving you an ATO. That has some, I think we still have a ne next click down of like very deep inspection and tracking progress day for day before we get to that point. Unfortunately, we haven't had systems that, that warrant that, but it is a possibility. We could get to that point where we're saying right now, we're going to be very honest with Congress. We're going to be very honest with OMB. This particular system is operating without an ATO, but we're not there we're, and we're making super good progress. So I, I feel good about the, where we're heading. The biggest deal is to say no when a CIO actually puts their thumb down on the scale, puts their foot down and says, no, you're not getting an ATO. Uh, Kurt, I'll just be honest, that's big news for us in, uh, <laughs> in the media world because that, that shows the, the power, obviously, that, that you all well, have. You, get, you, go, you go so far, and at some point, the only tool you have left is to say no. And I exactly. actually think at some point, if you, we, the one thing the secretary has been really, he said it over and over again, I really firmly believe it, is this notion of transparency. There's nothing, I meet with, with the staffers on the HVAC and SVAC quarterly, there's nothing I won't tell them if they ask the question. And I think another one would be if they ask me, what are the systems that they're worried about? I'd, we'd talk about that. There's nothing, I, I don't think it behooves us to, to hold anything um, back. Now, there are certain things, I don't want to give vulnerabilities away to our attackers. And so I certainly wouldn't do that. But um, having frank conversations is really important. Kurt, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. My guest today is Kurt Delbeni, the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by ExtraHop on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by ExtraHop on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Kurt Delbeni, the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. VA over the years has struggled with cybersecurity, and, and part of the reason is because of the size, the different devices, the different host, the way hospitals connect. And one of the big challenges for folks in your position in the past has uh, been what I'll call shadow IT. I know some folks don't necessarily like that terminology that's called shadow IT, but is your trust enabling you to kind of get your head around it because the data you're pulling in, those capabilities that go out and search the network and tell you what's been connecting and and in DOD, they have something called Comply to Connect, a very similar. Is that something you all are starting to look at to kind of try to get your heads and arms around shadow IT? Yeah, well, I don't think it's so much that people don't like the term shadow IT. I don't think they like the thing called shadow IT. Um, but we call it business-led IT. And it's inevitable that you're going to have some of that. There are certain services that, that 
the administrations can contract for. We were very specific about what those services are. They tend to be COTS um, SAS services. It presents a challenge from a security perspective. They have to go through the same ATO process, but the place we're actually, I'm pushing on right now is who owns the technical analysis of whether that outsourced service managed by the business or by the administration is compliant. And as we make this transition towards compliant or being secure is as much of a compliance exercise as a technical assessment, then you need technically inclined people to be able to do that assessment. And you need them to be able to engage deeply with the outsourcer in a way that just a, a typical business person is not trained to do. And so we're having those conversations right now around what's the contract? If you're going to, if this is going to be business-led IT, what's the contract with OIT so that one, we can make sure that it operates effectively, and two, we can make sure that it complies from a privacy perspective and from a cybersecurity perspective. So I think that's work in progress for us. Is that something as you kind of go through those discussions and look at the contracts, is that something that kind of gets pushed up to the CIO's office? Because VA CIO, as we know around government, is one of the more if you will, powerful CIOs, you have much more authority than maybe some other CIOs. Congress gave that to you more than a decade ago, or, or is it still kind of you, you have to you have to reach out to those folks, you have to kind of find it and then talk talk to them. How's the process work? Well, both. I mean, I tend to be the kind of CEO that is a worrier, and so I always have my I have my list. Of all the issues that I, I I keep this with me always, I'm always writing it down. I'm always interacting with people because I think a great CIO needs to know the details all the way to the floor, and I think that's really really hard in a place as as complex as the as this place is. But I think it's important at the CIO level. I think it's important as as at their direct level. I think it goes all the way down. And obviously, I don't know it to the level that a project you know deep in the organization is. But from a meta perspective of like, do I understand the cyber posture of that particular process? What worries me about it? I think you got to have that level of understanding. The second thing is, I think those gates we talked about of the ATO and FATAR in particular are places where you can exercise that authority that says, I need to understand what the cybersecurity posture is of that particular outsourced arrangement is. There are other things like, you know, do I, do you think the business arrangement is good? And so we're really amping up for all of that business-led IT, making sure that it goes through FATARA and making sure that the strategy makes sense, that um, the vendor is a strong one based on our past experience, that they have good cyber practices, et cetera. And then the final thing I'd leave you with is some people think these contracts are these big things that happen every three years. They're actually not because we get multiple bites at the apple. What we do is we approve the overall, what we think the envelope of spend will be, and then it's a base plus option periods. And so I get another bite at it a year, every year, essentially, which is a good thing. I think people forget about that idea that these options have to be picked up. And many, most of the time, I, I don't know the data, but I would guess 95 to 98% of those options are picked up. But if there is a problem or if there is something that's happening, you do have that option not to pick it up. Kurt, Correct. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about the workforce. And then that also can tag us back into this automation when you move into zero trust, it really changes your workforce, what skill sets they need, but also how much automation you can bring in other tools to reduce the burden on the workforce. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing some training and then we can talk automation? Well, first thing I think is uh, this, we need to make sure that we have a good deal for people who join OIT and join the VA in a tech space. And so we're looking at things like, what do we pay 
folks, and we've been working on this thing, the special salary rate, which will raise the, the level of pay for people that are in uh, what's called series 2210 um, to make it competitive in the industry. So I think that's key. I think the second thing is, can people come in at a more junior level and see a set of, of career stage progressions that get them to a, be a very senior place? And is it, you know, I want to be able to develop people who can move to more senior positions within the VA or into other parts of the federal government or even into the commercial sector. I mean, it's half of the folks that are in OIT are veterans. I think this is an off-ramp from active military duty or service onto a veteran status where you can continue to make a, a contribution to those that you served with. And so I think it can be a great career. I think we have to be very prescriptive about what those stages look like. We have to provide training in the organization to move somebody from one step to the other. It does also push towards more technical skills in these positions. And we need to make those expectations clear. We need to accommodate people as they transition towards more technical skills. But we also need to think about there are, you know, I think there's a ton of folks, really um, important folks in the VA who work on the management of our systems and the business management. Those, those jobs continue to exist, and we need to augment them with technical, with deeply technical roles as well, and then make people have a choice, give people a choice, not make them have a choice. They can continue in the work that they're doing, but they can say, wow, I really want to go deeply technical and having the training available for them to make that transition. That also speaks to the fact that we need to actually increase the number of people we have working in this space overall in, in OIT. Um, historically, our budgets, I feel like, have not been enough for us to hire all the people uh, that we need to, particularly in the cybersecurity space. And we've been working with Congress, working with OMB. I, even in the 24 budget, we saw an increase that we really advocated hard for. And I think that's going to have to be a multi-year thing. But we're getting really crisp on, in articulating what the need is, which I think is the, has been lacking in the past. I want to go back to that special salary rate. I have to be honest, my colleague, Jory Heckman, has done a great job of covering this issue. And every story he writes about that, you see, we see tons of interest. One of the big things we're hearing, though, from CIOs is, oh, yeah, I, I want to have more money to spend. I want to hire people and pay them more. I don't have the budget for it. VA has one of the largest IT budgets. We know that. But there's a reason for that. Are you able to have enough salaries and expenses to pay people more or limited? Where do you sit with that idea of can you implement? I'll tell you, it's challenging. We had to do the calculation to figure out what we're going to stop doing to be able to implement the special salary rate. But to me, it is so important that we had to do that calculation and we've made room for it in the budget. The other thing that I'm really excited about is we've now created and we share with Congress, we share with uh, OMB, our UFER list, our unfunded requirements list. Um, and uh, that basically says where we cut the line in our prioritization, let us tell you what's below the line. And it's some really hard stuff and stuff we really need to get done. But again, to that transparency of our, our dialogue with Congress and dialogue with OMB, we need to have that kind of clarity if we're going to get the fund uh, additional funding and, and what are scarce dollars even at the federal level. Kern, I know we're just hitting up against the hard stop that you have. So uh, before I let you go, I think the last question I'll just offer you is when it comes to zero trust, and, and there's you mentioned vendors earlier. You have your own folks who you're talking about more technical. Where do you hope that VA is a year from now, five years from now, when it comes to zero trust? Are there specific, hey, we have to be here, then we have to be there to really start seeing the benefits of zero trust? Well, I think we're seeing the benefits already. 
are there aspirations I have for the next one, five years? Absolutely. I think getting the perimeter uh, in terms of login and authenticating people with MFA to 100% and not have, a, have too many people that say, oh, I forgot my PIV card, so give me an exemption. Having that, be a, that avenue be an MFA avenue as well. And so things like that, where we get to a true 100% around MFA, generally speaking, I think will, is really important to me personally. I think getting to authenticated access lists is really important. I think wrestling with this notion of service accounts and having them be secure and not, share, not have um, passwords that have been there a long time. There are specific things that I hope it, you know, I'm, I get into the details and to me, to me, cybersecurity is all about the details. And so I have a very, the thing we have, we have um, put in our OKRs that we iterate and improve there are some very specific things I want to get done in that space, and we're doing them every day. And I'll leave you with one last thing. Uh, the biggest challenge here is, is vendors always want to sell to VA. You're, I'm sure you get more than enough questions. Is there anything you'd want to maybe offer to vendors as, as they approach you and your, your team? Yeah, I think that we need to think of them as partners with us in our development teams. I run The way I like to operate is like a how we would do it in commercial development, where if they're our dev team, in a lot of cases, they may be three quarters of our headcount. We need to think of them as partners along with the folks that are driving the product. And I need to hear the voices of what's going well versus not going well, as if we're that we're going to hold them accountable. But we need to have that duality of they're accountable, yet they feel as if they're partners. And that's the, uh, that is the transformation and operation I think is absolutely critical in this uh, duality of full-time people with contractors. Kurt, I know we could talk a lot longer, but unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Kurt Dalbeni is the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and the Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Kurt, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for talking. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Extra Hop on Federal News Network. We have to take a break. When we return, we will continue to hear from VA CIO Kurt Dalbeni, who held a press conference June 6th. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments, I'm playing an excerpt of a recent press conference from VA CIO Kurt Talbeni, who discusses the agency's new approach to IT projects and how it works with vendors. We just thought it'd be good to get together since contractors play such a pivotal role, and it's been talked about the industry overall, of how work gets done in the federal government. As I've come on board with the VA and, and leading OIT, We've developed a different perspective about the role that, uh, that contractors play in us getting our work done and accomplishing our mission. I thought it'd be good to talk about that. One of the things I think is important as a kind of a level setting is just the magnitude of the organization, which maybe mo- many of you on this call know. But just to recap, we're talking about a half million plus desktops. We're talking about 2,000 locations, over 1,000 systems. Obviously, it's a massive organization. And the other thing that people don't quite recognize is the ratio to which this is the work it gets done by contractors. We are, and don't quote me on the specifics, but I think I'm roughly right that it's about 85% of the work that gets done within our organization is done by contractors. And this is very different than how you think of things in the commercial space where we were predominantly a full-time shop. We thought about having product managers and program managers and then the dev team. In a lot of cases, you can just really think of this as the dev team is outsourced. And that outsourcing can work well, and especially in a world where it's going to take us a while to ramp up to getting more full-time, highly technical individuals. We have a bunch of them in the org. We need a lot more, though. You're gonna, we're going to live in an environment where contractors are a key part of work, getting the work done. 
And one of the things that we've observed and I've, I've noted in particular as I joined is that there's an arm's length typically too often between the contractor and the full-time teams. And if you think about it, in a lot of cases, we basically, that big dev team that we have as part of the triad is just an outsourced team. And we're driving towards having that team be an integral part of every single one of the projects we run. And, and just having that philosophy that says, yeah, they're the dev counterpart in meetings even. We had cases where people, the development teams, the contract development teams didn't actually come to the meeting because it was expected that full-time people would represent the project work. But we live in sync together, so we've got to think of ourselves as a shared team um, and operate that way. At the same time, we're trying to um, make sure that we hold contractors accountable. We use FATAR as one way to do that, um, by whether we approve a contractor being used for a particular project. But we also do root cause analysis on every issue. We identify places where contractors are not actually performing well, and we make sure that we, do, we document that for future use and remediate against it. And I think that's really key to kind of upping the game for contractors, generally speaking. We also do this on a, on a regular basis to have meetings with contracts, et cetera, but nothing can beat that, hey, get them in the room, get them on the call, let's, let's problem solve together and, and resolve that. The other thing I'd say is different about how we work with contractors these days is less and less of the big bang development project. Those are the ones that often we talk about as failures. We are moving to a world where if we do an RFP, for instance, we will define that first nugget, that MVP, and say the first milestone, that first thing you will deliver to us is that MVP. And then we'll see that it meets the actual need. We'll then iterate and make sure we get it to that place where it is set, and then we'll scale it out from there. And then all those optional tasks past that, we're not actually committing those dollars until we actually see that the system is the system that we, we think is right. And then the final thing that I think we're doing, then I'll pass it over to, to discussion and questions, is we're changing the way we engage with contractors, particularly smaller contractors. We want to bring more and more of them into the ecosystem of VAOIT. But to do that, it's kind of like we need them to show us the capabilities that they have. And so we'll get in, into situations where we'll give them a small piece of work and say, show us what you can deliver here. Because there's a lot of innovation that goes on with smaller contractors, but that if they can prove themselves and then scale up and do more and more with us over time. So maybe I'll pause there, but really the gist is thinking very differently about contractors, thinking of them as integral parts of our team that are peers of ours, but then keeping that, that evaluation going and having those engagements, particularly with their leadership, to make sure that they're doing the right thing for us, and then changing the kind of projects we drive so that there's less of this big bang, more of the build success upon success. And we think if you take those things collectively, it'll increase our success with projects in the VA, which right back where I started, doing something at this scale requires a massive scale of these projects to be going on at the same time. Kurt, good to see you again. Thanks for uh, doing this. Likewise. I'm going to throw maybe two things at you at the same time related. Fair or not, I'll start with the question with that. <laughs> you, maybe it's maybe your office, but it's you seem to have a reputation of, I don't meet with industry. Now, you're probably going to say, well, how can they say that? I meet with industry all the time. But I guess there's a feeling that the industry has a hard time getting to see you or to see your folks. And whether that's fair or not, again, maybe it's more optics than actual reality. How does this approach maybe try to satisfy some of those concerns or some of those, even those reputational optics that, well, VA only works with the people they want to work with. 
a new entrance or people who maybe haven't done work at VA very often or before can't get through the door. Can, can you kind of maybe address how maybe this is going to maybe try to address some of those concerns? Again, real or not, it doesn't matter. The optics are what they are. The scale of the organization means I get a lot of emails and a lot of inquiries about wanting to sell services or sell products to the VA. It's impossible for me to meet with everybody. Every single mail that I get, it goes to our strategic sourcing group that then looks to see who's the right person within the VA to triage this and figure out if there's a need. And so we've really kind of made sure it's a fair, a fair playground in that in, or playing field in that regard. There are some places where a particular contractor, we've got, we have a book of business with them and there's some issues and I want them. And so when they reach out, I say, yeah, I actually would like to meet with you because I have some, I have some issues I want to work out with you. Or by the way, I'd like to understand where you're going. And I do a lot of those meetings, but I also meet with a lot of smaller contractors along the way as well, but I can't meet with everybody, but I want to make sure we get everything triaged to make sure that that goes to the right place. As you can also well imagine, there are places where people will say, I've got the solution for you in the cyberspace telemetry um, product. And it's like one of N such. And by the way, we've made a bet on a particular vendor for that particular product. And in those cases, I'll pass it along, but the, uh, the chance of us swapping out one vendor for another when we're kind of anchored around is probably pretty low. And so I understand where that sentiment would come from, but I do, we are pretty deliberate about how we triage um, the income and queries and try to make sure it's fair in that regard. The other thing I would say, by the way, as long as I've got you here and before uh, we get to the next question, is we created a great uh, website called Pathfinder, which um, our acquisitions folks did, whereas it's a place where people can go to and submit their, um, the opportunity that they have to do business with VA and there will be folks that are triaging on the other side. So I'd encourage that, um, that inroad as well. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a recent press conference from VA CIO Kurt Delbeni, who discussed the agency's new approach to IT projects and how to work with vendors. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a recent press conference from VA CIO Kurt Delbeni, who discussed the agency's new approach to IT projects and how it works with vendors. Kurt, one of the things when it comes to the vendors is you talked about get away from the big bang. And we heard Eric Heisen, the DHS CIO, say something very similar to Congress recently about the same thing. But contracting can make it harder not to get this big bang approach, right? Well, what are your requirements? Put all the requirements out. And then funding also makes it challenging too. How are you finding that right balance between awarding contracts that don't call for that big bang, ensuring that you have the ability to award the next task order, next task order, and then also having the funding behind it. You're one of the few CIOs in government that actually has control over an IT budget. So maybe that makes things easier, but maybe talk a little bit about how you're re-looking at both contracting and funding. We're really just pushing it to happen because if you think about the first task order being small, and when we go out with an RFP, and you'll see this in RFPs that VA goes out with at this point in time forward, the first task will be very small and it will be explicitly defined. And it will be interesting to see, um, like, for instance, in the supply chain work we're doing, like when people look and see, oh, this is going to be a huge effort. But that first one, I have, it's clear, I, you know, got a five to seven month period where I have to prove out this solution. I have to define the solution well to meet the needs and I have to prove it out at kind of the MVP level. I think everybody's still going to bid on that and they're still going to want to do it because they see the potential for the ultimate delivery. 
You know, one of the things, it's not the specific question you asked, but it's, I'll take the opportunity to talk about it is, it doesn't mean necessarily that we will farm out the different pieces of the project to lots and lots of different people, because I don't necessarily think that's a recipe for success. I know there's been some discussion on the Hill around, you know, does this mean we can bring smaller, a bunch of smaller contractors in because we'll spit, we'll break up a project into a bunch of small pieces. That's kind of a recipe for a well, a poorly integrated project across the board. If you look at some of the failures in healthcare.gov, for instance, that, that team chose to take the five major components of healthcare.gov and give them to different contractors. And you can see where the integration did not work when they flipped the switch and turn and turn the thing on. So that you still have to have the thing built in such a way that there's consistency across the key places. That's also not to say it all has to be built by one contractor, but you can't just say, oh, we're going to slice it into a, uh, several dozen pieces and give it to different different organizations to be done. So just want to make sure it's clear. Big Bang doesn't and breaking up doesn't mean that we've got lots of different contractors different doing different things. We got to have this cohesiveness of a team so that we get a good result in the end. And just the real quick on the funding, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that challenge too? Because again, Congress gives you one year money or no year money and all the different colors of money. Yeah, I think it puts a it does put a requirement on a few things. One, we need to get the life cycle cost estimate done so that Congress sees what the ultimate cost of a system will be. And so we've gotten a lot of push, rightfully so, around doing these life cycle estimates for our large projects. In the omnibus spending bill last year, there was a there was a provision that says as something becomes a major program, we need to do cost schedule and performance and report that to Congress on a regular basis. I think that's helpful. Um, it also gives them line of sight into the funding that we need. I think what will be interesting is when we envision a very large project um, like supply chain, for instance, and we present that life cycle cost, we then can get engaged into a discussion with the Hill around, yeah, we're going to actually have, if we're going to move forward on this, we're going to have to have um, appropriations that match that need, or we're going to have to discussion about whether this is a priority o- overall as well. I would say related to that, this is also the benefit of being highly transparent with Congress. I have told them, told the, the staffers in the HVAC and the SVAC committee, there's no question that we, we're not happy to come to the Hill or do a, a conference like this and actually talk about. I think we need to be in a richer dialogue back and forth. So they say, you know, what we're hearing on our side is these are the priorities. What are you doing about that? Or by the way, we hear you're trying to do this. I'm not sure I understand where that priority is. And then, but it is also a partnership. We need to get the funding if we're going to do the program, or we need to le- learn early on that there's not enough support for that funding and uh, and make other plans. And then the final thing I'll say, sorry to run on, but I don't think we have another person with a question at this point. I think that in a lot of cases, we need to make a distinct qu- uh, differentiation between whether we do the replace this system with this system versus do we actually incrementally improve that system and modernize it over time. And by that chunking up and doing modernization over time, you find that like seven years hence, the system doesn't look anything like the system that you had seven years ago, but you can chunk up the the expenditures over a period of time and you can deliver functionality to end users incrementally versus boom, the whole new system comes in and and cross your fingers and delivers on the need. So we're also thinking with the team about that and how do you get into incremental modernization now, you can't do that everywhere because you've got places like we've still got a few mainframes sitting around here. 
And we that one, you have to flip the switch and turn it off at some point. And we're driving towards that too. Uh, Sarah Seibrick of CIO Media and Research. Uh, so as you start to take this new approach, how are you measuring success or what does that look like for you? When do you start to see improvements to the contracting process and what does that timeline look like? Well, one of the things that we, it's a great question. Um, one of the things we've done is we have a clear set of OKRs or objectives and key results, both at the OIT overall level and within each of the individual teams. And so that's a key part of it. And so what the idea is every team knows what are their key objectives and it's it's done by semester for us. And so we'll have a spring semester and we'll, that something will end about June and then another one that ends in the fall and we'll define a set of OKRs, things we wanna make progress on over that six months. And that can tell us like if, the, if there's a particular OKR within a team, we're not making progress, we need to work harder on that particular team. So that's, I think that's a really key part of it. The other thing we do is we're tracking things like we have a resiliency dashboard that says, here are all the bedrock systems, the ones that everybody's depending upon. Here's all the critical systems. They're together, they're about a hundred systems for us. How are they doing in terms of their uptime, in terms of the resiliency? Do they have tests of resiliency? Um, and, and key criteria across you know, the entire spectrum of what represents engineering excellence. And then the final thing I'd say is we have actually, uh, in the past year and a half since I've been here, started this thing called it, uh, an engineering excellence initiative, which says we get together as a group and we find out where are we not, where do we have chinks in the armor of our um, of our engineering processes? What do we want to drive for improvement there? Um, and it'll be things like, what does our development pipeline look like? And do we have enough security checking as, as code gets checked in? What percentage of, of, um, of critical errors are happening in systems because of unforced errors, uh, human beings making mistakes? And we might take an OKR to drive down the percentage of unforced errors over a semester. Um, and so again, it's all about figuring out where our gaps are, figuring out what do we want to measure um, differently in the next semester than we are in this semester and just iteratively turning the crank over and over and over again. And again, that's pretty much how uh, how the rest of the world works too. It's just exciting to kind of bring this level of engineering rigor into the federal government as well. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a recent press conference from VACIO Kurt Delbeni. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 